Hey everybody, my name is Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now, if you are just joining us, um, I want to get into some stuff by, before we talk about well, what we're going to talk about today. And those things are first things first. I have a giveaway code, actually. Not intentionally, very much unintentionally. I went to Anime NYC where I met a bunch of people. Um, one of which, um, Evan Minto, ended up giving me a giveaway code as part of just like a fun in-panel game situation for the app that he runs called Isaacy. And if you don't know what Isaacy is, Isaacy is a subscription service for about four bucks a month. You can read all the manga on Isaacy, and they have hundreds and hundreds of series, most of which with like the full everything available and they're also doing a bunch of great simul published simul pubs which means simultaneously published alongside japan or close to alongside if they can get um but it's a very cool thing if you're into manga if you're into anime you want it again the manga this is a great way i have a three month code i cannot use because i am already a member if you want this code I highly encourage you to go um, to go follow me at Lunchbox Radio pot at Lunchbox Radio underscore podcast over on Instagram and DM me. And if the code is still there, it's yours. <laughs> um, so definitely go do that and go check out our Instagram handle. Um, once again, that handle is Lunchbox Radio underscore podcast. Um, I also, because I need it for scheduling things, set up a uh, new email address for the podcast. And that is lunchboxradiopodcast at gmail.com. So if you have any questions, any anything about, the, about anime that you want to get off your chest or um, anything about the show you want to ask questions about or any of that, definitely drop a line at that email address also. Um, I will put social links and stuff in the body in the um, in the text of in the text of the description of this episode. Um, and look forward to I'm gonna me and Evan are gonna try and get something hopefully going for the podcast. I have to email him to like get that started, but I'm staring at his card right now. Um, but yeah, so look forward to a bunch of fun Sunday edition episodes that are more interview focused because I'll have people on, um, in the future, hopefully. And if you haven't heard the late Sunday edition, it is all about my time at and with, um, Anime NYC and all of its good and bad. You can definitely go listen to that as the previous episode in the podcast. Um, now, for what we're talking about this week. And what we're talking about this week is the, the little show called Call of the Night. <laughs> Oh, 
Now, if you're not familiar with Call of the Night, it's a show by the same author who did um, a show a bunch of seasons back, a bunch of years back at this point, at this point called Don Kashi. And Don Kashi centered around this, like, neighborhood sweets shop that was by the shore and sold traditional Japanese sweets. But it really, but what it really centered around is it centered around this, like, aesthetic quality to this author's work. And that aesthetic quality has a certain fetishization is what I'm going to call it. Like, the the characters have a look to them, and, it, and the show has a feel to it that feels very fetishizable, if that makes any sense. And I know that's really strange. But the long and short of it is, is that it's a... It's an odd thing to... Um, it's an odd thing to realize about a show that you're watching a show that exists um that exi- that exists in like a space where it's like you you're seeing the internet kind of leak into the character design aspect of the show the way the characters act the way the show kind of poses and places itself in like the culture of anime fandom and Dankashi really is that show. It like really had that and really had that. Um, some other shows that do this pretty overtly are um, Uzaki or Uzaki wants to hang out. That has really strong like Uzaki as a character feels like she was designed by committee for you know nerd for nerd bait. For like nerd, etchy, etchy and hentai doujin bait. Like she just feels like she was designed that way. So does her sister. So does her mother. And like if you rule 34 Uzaki, you will find some shit. Like you will find some shit in a way that like, oh, they, like the author knew that this was going to happen to this character and maybe intended on it. Um... A lot of those, like, teasing senpai shows have that quality. Um, a ton of harem shows have that quality. Uh, even shows you wouldn't expect have these kinds of little moments in them of, like, that. that's the internet fandom at its weirdest and most bizarre. But on any in any case, the... The, what's the best word for this? The long and short of this, of the author, of this author's work is that they have a style that shows they came up in a certain era of anime. And like it, it, this, this, this original author's work has a... Has a feel. It has a style. In the same way that, say, um, Hayao Miyazaki has a style. I'm, I'm reading um, Shauna's Journey now. And that, like, that looks like the stuff that came before and came after it from Hayao Miyazaki. You recognize, like, faces of Komaji on different characters with a different color mustache in Shauna's Journey. And I'll, I'll be covering that I'm probably next, actually. Um, but... The long and short of it is he has a look. And that look can be a little disjarring. But once you get used to that look, it has almost the same effect as something like I would say Odd Taxi's look does. In that it's just like you just have to adjust to it and then you're you're cool. Then you're watching the thing. But it takes a second. Because all, mostly because all of this author's character look like they're strung out on drugs. (laughs) What I mean by that is their, like, pupils are incredibly small in the eye. Like, there's a lot of white to the eye in a way that's not true of most anime characters. They usually have giant, like, pupils and irises. But these characters have, like, 
pretty tiny eyes in that skull. And I actually started watching this when it came out. I started watching um, Call of the Night when it came out. But I also started watching it under, let's say, not great, but unusual circumstances that I, I have impressively high blood pressure. And what that meant for a little while was I couldn't sleep very well. Because I would lay down and my blood would shift and just the massive blood pressure would let me would not let me breathe. So I spent all like a couple weeks in the season that um um Call of the Night was primarily coming out. Well, like I was up at three o'clock and like I needed to like distract my mind and maybe like figure out a way to drift to sleep while like propped up slightly. And it was in that moment that I decided to try Call of the Night, which I I had heard I had heard about, and I had thought about starting the manga on, but then once I found out it was going to get an anime, I just decided to wait. And what happened as a result of that surprised me, because this is a show. If you don't know anything about Call of the Night, um, a I encourage you to watch it if you have high dive. It's totally worth it. It's clearly one of their more popular shows because it is one of the um, three post it is one of the four posters that High Dive was giving away at their booth for free, which means that they value that thing as like, oh, this is a selling point anime. Like, this is a reason people are on this service. Um, and it probably has kind of a little bit of the same cult status as Donkashi has. But what this show is about is a it's about being up late at night. In a real, in a real way, it's about being up late at night. It's about like self-discovery. It's about all of these things. But because I started watching it at the at the like at the time at which they describe at night, which was three like three in the goddamn morning, which was like you never actually go to sleep. You just are up. Like the main character, Ko. It kind of like I fell into a rhythm and it felt right to watch this show when you were up at that time. For a number of weeks, I watched it like I I would be up at three o'clock and I'd be like, I've got nothing better to do. So I'm going to hang out and watch Call the Night. Like I'm going to be up with these weirdos and like get, get into their shenanigans and... Like, just have a good time. Just chill out. Like, maybe drink something. Watch Call of the Night. And then when it's over, like, I'd be calmed down enough. I'd be low-key enough where I could just go to sleep. And since then, I went to get a checkup because not being able to sleep because you had super high blood pressure. Not being able to sleep because you don't know why, actually, at the time was a little concerning. So I went to get a checkup which I hadn't done in years, so there you go. And it all got resolved, and I started sleeping through the night, and it always felt weird, and it still feels weird, watching calls the night not in that environment. And as soon as that happened, I said to myself, I need to get enough of this show in me where I feel like I can talk about it, but also I should talk about this show because that is... Like, having that, having that outside, the outside world effect on a viewer is an interesting thing. If you think about, if you think about the way most, um, anime, most anime stuff is scheduled, yes, it comes out on a certain day, but you feel like you can watch it whenever. The new episode of Bleach comes out on Monday. You can watch that on Friday if you want. But... This show captured, but Call of the Night captures the feeling of like the true dead of all of humanity is asleep right now. Or like all the whole world is seemingly asleep right now in a way that once it matched up, at least for me, with that actual reality of like me being the only person for blocks and blocks and blocks probably. Awake, 
it all felt right. Like it was, it was capturing that like, who are the who are the streetlights on for kind of vibe. It was capturing that if you've ever been a car in a car at like two to four in the morning kind of vibe, like driving down a road with nobody on it. And that felt so right and so cool that I had and still have problems, not only because High Dive is not the most cooperative streamer in terms of like we want to work perfectly all the time, but also because it just doesn't feel right to like sit down in the afternoon and watch, you know, Call of the Night be awake, be and all the characters in Call of the Night be awake at like all, like from like nine o'clock to two in the morning. And here's why I want to like let you in on what this show's deal is. This show is about um, a character named Ko, Ko Yamori and Ko is, he's, I'm going to say this. He is, he is totally normal, but he's not normal in the way that everyone around him is normal. He, if that makes any sense. To everyone around him, he, everyone around him, he perceived as weird, as deeply strange, and slightly uncomfortable to be around, and nobody really knows how to deal with him. And the way this kind of best manifests is, Ko loses interest in the waking world. And once you know more about him, it's easy to see why. And it's easy, it's easy to... And I'm going to talk about this later in um, a Sunday ed- edition. But in, in a societal makeup like Japan, it's easy for individual people to just wander the fuck off. To not have a place. Because they're... The way their society functions, it's not an individualistic society. If you are weird, that is... If you are weird in a way that the Borg can't use, then it doesn't really have a use for you. But it also... It doesn't... It, it doesn't necessarily pay attention to you perfectly. In, in America, let's say you're like a weird kid and you're struggling in school. The solution is not... Read better or we'll ignore you until you go away. The solution is you get to go into a specialized class where they pay special attention to you and they make sure that you pass and they make sure they make sure that they're doing their best to like nurture you and all this other stuff. Now, believe you me as someone who had to go through that shit, it is not perfect. It is like there are better answers. There is a better mousetrap out there for that bullshit. But the answer also shouldn't be like you're a little too, you're a little off, so we don't know what to do with you. So I guess just drift off. And this is this is also interestingly, um, if you listen to the Air Gear episode, this is um, where you find where you find Iki in the beginning of Air Gear, and you can go listen to that episode in the podcast feed. In whatever app you can listen to me right now. But the long and short of it is that a lot of like like Air Gear, this story is about Ko finding a place for himself. And really and really like just kind of once he finds it, he stops he stops so in unintentionally drifting through what he was doing before when you learn more about Ko in the um in some of the later episodes you realize that he really was kind of drifting and like yes and like that drifting meant that he didn't have many friends he like he didn't have much attachment to the world he didn't have like he was like a kid who wouldn't fill out his what he wants to be in the future survey because he didn't really see a place for himself in the future. 
And the way and the way that manifests ultimately is he just kind of like wakes up one in the middle of the night one night. It's like, I'm not tired. Why am I doing this? And he just gets up and goes for a walk. And eventually on on this walk he encounters a vending machine and he and he real and this is the moment when he realizes like Oh, this is a vending. This is a beer vending machine because of their thing in Japan. He's like, I could just order a beer. Like, like, there's nothing stopping me from doing this. Because, and this is pretty freeing to him because, up until, up until you're in college generally as an adolescent person and for those adolescent per- people listening you'll probably know, know exactly what I'm about to say up until you're in college you are very you exist in a very controlled and locked down system like yes there's like moments of freedom you get but by and large it's not it's not a free for all it's not like when you it's not like you live in we live in the Pokemon universe where when you hit ten, your mom's like, here's a small, very dangerous fire lizard. Go fight other bigger sometimes, many times, dangerous animals that can murder you with this tiny fire lizard, which will eventually turn into a big dragon that also breathes fire and is pissed. And there's a reason why that sounds so insane, but while but why that is such a fantasy for 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 especially young kids, it's because and part of it is because that from the second from the minute you play you start playing Pokemon, even if you're on rails, even if you're not playing Pokemon Scarlet Scarlet and Violet, which are like which have no rails essentially like once you get to the first part of that story it's like hey what do you want to do pick what you want to do and do it um but even when you're on rails you decide on how fast you go through the game you decide what pokemon you pick at the beginning you just you make all of these decisions that are consequential and feel consequential to you even if you're going through a storyline and that feeling, that control, that feeling that no one is going to tell you what to do, really, is great when you're a kid and, like, you just, like, it gets to be a place where your brain gets to, like, enjoy play. But it's even better when you're in, like, middle school, high school, and you understand the implications of this is mine. <laughs> like, I actually control this. And you see that demonstrated most prominently in middle school and high school is in, like, what they choose to wear and all this other stuff. Like, that's, that's kind of, like, peak scene kid energy for a lot of kids in America. But in Japan, that individuality is encouraged to be stamped out through school uniforms, through the way society works, through your place in that society. And that ends up being, that can, but if society doesn't have a place for you, if it's like you don't feel like you fit in and no one, and no one can figure out how to help you feel that way and you can't figure out how to help yourself feel that way, what do you do? And in something like Air Gear, what's interesting is that solution looks an awful lot like a shonen protagonist solution. Um, like Iki becomes a storm rider and leads a big storm, leads a, his own team, and then leads a bigger team, and then like becomes god among men. It's a very shonen power scaling thing. That's not uncommon for much of the answers to that question. If you look at something like um, Naruto, for example, Naruto's solution for not being accepted by the by the world around him is to become so powerful and such a big hero that everyone accepts him. By the end of the the 
And gradually along the way, he has characters who acknowledge him and say, hey, like, you're worth it. Like, you're a cool dude. Rock and roll. Iruka is the first example of that in that show. Later it's Kakashi. Later it's Tsunade. And, but if you watch that show, with the exception of Iruka, who's like genuinely just the nicest fucking dude. And like, with the exception of Iruka and the exception of the people who own Ichiraku Ramen, nobody else really truly is just like, yeah, that kid's fine. It's not his fault that he's possessed by a giant demon fox that tried to kill us all. In fact, but we should be we should be treating him pretty okay because yo he's the reason the village is still standing, motherfucker. Why do you kids treat him like he's a piece of shit? With the exception of those t- of the owner of Ichiraku and of I- Iruka Even Kakashi, who is his, who is supposed to be his teacher it's like not taken with his students. He understands Naruto's value and he treats him with respect, but he does it in a very teacher, in like a non personal teacherly way, unlike the like very personal, very emotionally supportive way that Aruka does. And later on down the line, you see Naruto co- convince Jiraiya that he's worth it. You see Naruto convince. Tsunade that he's worth it. You and the other, the last character who probably respected him from the beginning is the third Hokage, Saratobi. And that's because the third Hokage knew what the deal was. Like actually knew. Didn't have to like put the pieces together in the, in his head. Like actually knew like this is not this kid's fault. <laughs> I've been paying this kid taxes for years and I know that this is not this kid's fault. And the entirety of Naruto, and then also the entirety of Naruto Shippuden, is Naruto, the main character, kind of proving over and over and over again to every single character he meets. This is the arc of every of just about every Naruto movie. Like I'm worth a damn. Don't underestimate me. Don't take me for granted. I'm worth it. And once, if you've Watched enough of that show. I'm not saying all of that show, but if you've watched enough of that show, and I promise I'll get back to the main thing in a second, you know that by the time Naruto defeats Pain and saves the village, by the end of that, the whole village's like attitude towards him changes. And in that fight, even Pain is like, why do you care about these motherfuckers so much? They don't value you. They don't They don't see you as a person. They see you as a monster, just like me. And he says, and Naruto says, like, that's their problem. I'm just trying to be the best I can be. The best they're ever, the best, that's my ninja way, motherfucker. <laughs> Not actually, but... You know, you know what I'm saying. And that is more often than not the solution to so much of the outsiderness that you see, not just in anime and manga, but in so much of all kinds of media. Like if you and so much so that the characters who stand out the most in many kinds of media are the characters who don't go that way. For example, if you look at TV, House is a phenomenal show, but House of the Characters is really stands out because he, at no point in that show, is not a dickbag to like anybody who breathes <laughs> in his direction. And I guess he has valued friends and treasured colleagues and all that shit, but he's also like he is like sandpaper to. Anybody and everybody. And it's just how fine the grit is. If you look at the Mar if you look at the if you look at the Marvel universe, even the current Marvel universe, um the, the movie Marvel universe, 
Steve Rogers stands out because he wants to go against the grain when Tony Stark wants to, when Captain America wants to change the way they do things because he thinks it should be more independent and Captain, and Captain America and Steve Rogers as a character, aka Captain America, loses confidence in that show's version of the Borg, the government, as that, in that universal version of the collective, the government, as the government reveals itself to be a bigger piece of shit. <laughs> and, you know, even in the very first Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, Iron Man, Tony goes through something similar. He realizes that what he's doing, him just going along with the process, can't be anymore. And he becomes a total outsider in his own company, so much so that Jeff Bridges tries to murder him. Um, which you know is bad when Jeff Bridges comes to your house with a pizza and tries to murder you. That's just, that's just bad form. That's just, that's, that's a bad day right there. And even, and the last example I'll give is actually Batman. And the reason why I'm giving Batman as an example, some of you may already realize this, is in the Justice League cartoon. Not the Super Friends, but the Justice League cartoon. And then in the Justice League Unlimited cartoon, it's very clear, two things are made pretty clear. First... Batman is paying for every fucking thing you see. <laughs> like, he 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 has, like, Koch Brothers times a million times Zuckerberg times Twitter times what times Elon Musk's amount of money. And he is paying for everything. Orbit, orbital Space Watchtower pays for it. Base on Earth pays for it. Anything you could ever need pays for it. But unlike Superman, who is fully willing to be part, who's doing his best to be part of the team and do what's best, unlike all those other characters, he intentionally refers to himself, and he means it, as a part-timer. He never joins, he, I don't believe, ever joins the, he never joins the Justice League both full-on, full-time. And that defi- and that like defiant streak is what defines him as a character in that narrative largely. Is he like every once in a while is like, Oh, you guys aren't gonna fix this shit. Okay, I'm gonna get the Bat family back together and go fix this shit <laughs> myself. And so like that that like falling into the a new collective is a really traditional way of thinking. And ultimately, it's something that reflects most people's experience in reality. Most people crave a place to belong, and so they look for a place to belong. This is true of even otaku, like you like you listening to this probably, and me. I don't necessarily go to... I am a singular person when I go to um, anime conventions, but as a singular person at anime conventions and at the after party I went to and all that stuff, I am more plugged into a community because now I'm in the same place as somebody who I've, you know, followed and talked to a lot on Twitter like Evan. Or, you know, I'm in a place where I know all the references, where I am, like, socially capable enough to, like, have a cohesion conversation that feels like that it is full of signifiers that we both belong. I see the tinfoil hat guy with the sandwich board on him that says, they're lying to you, the One Piece never existed. And it is deeply funny to me as everyone else in the vicinity. <laughs> and that was my favorite um, cosplay I saw there, by the way. is I didn't take a picture of him. I should have. But there was a guy who was just walking around with a tinfoil hat on and a sign that said, it's never real, it was never real. They lied to you, the one piece doesn't exist. <laughs> Give up all hope. Um, but that belonging is really valuable, and in its own way, it is a kind of power fantasy. But what... 
Eric Gear starts to do and then loses the thread, especially in the manga version of it, I think. And, um, but Call of the Night falls through on completely. If it says, like, yeah, but what if all that bullshit? What, what if the collective is not for you? What if you don't want that for yourself? What if you, like, what if you're okay with being off? What if you're okay with being weird? What if you don't need a whole community of people behind you? What if you need some friends and a loved one and you're good? And that's what, and, and in lots of ways, that those are very similar sayings. But in other ways, they're really not. Because what becomes clear when Ko meets, when Ko is like, deciding on what beer to get, essentially, is he meets this character, the second main character named Na, named Nazana. And Nazana is a vampire. And in Nazana, Ko sees A, a beautiful woman who's deep, who deeply fucks with him at every chance she gets. Um, but B, he sees... A pat, an alternative. He sees that he could become a vampire. Only the the premise that they set up is really interesting here because it sets up a definitive like these characters are some at some point are going to care deeply for each other if not love each other. And what Nalina says is like. The only way vampires reproduce by biting somebody is if the person they bite is in, is in love with them. Then they'll become a vampire. And they, they set up a really interesting concept behind um, the vampire bite in that it can be used to A, read someone's emotions and mind a little, and B, it can be used for the person getting bit to kind of contextualize their emotions and center themselves. So it's like, it's a double-sided coin and it's got odd things on both sides. And that sets up this kind of mumbling romance between the two of them. And I want to be clear here, because of the trickiness of High Dive streaming platform on Apple TV and just my, like, feelings about watching this show not at 3 in the morning, which is, I like, I don't, I'll do it, but I don't like doing it. I have not seen this whole show. But every episode has this kind of, like, uneasy sexual tension between Navina and Ko, regardless of what characters they introduce. And sometimes even more so for characters they introduce. And then they have, and then eventually they introduce in the form of um, Akira, the, the third character they introduce, this moment where Ko has an opportunity, he has an out. He has a way to go back to the normal world. And Akira is giving him that, that lifeline. And he really makes the decision of like, no, like I, I think I like it here. I think I like doing this. And he kind of presents it to Akira like, I think like, I'm, I dig this. Like he doesn't, they, that, that's never said, but it becomes very clear to Akira like, oh, he's happy here. And Akira was one of his like few friends growing up and they lost touch because Akira had a way to fit into found a way to fit into society in a way that Ko never did. And there's a moment where Akira is worried about Ko, but she's also like, no, he see, like, it, it seemed like it, this feels weird to me, but it clearly doesn't feel weird to him. And that's good. And that's a really cool thing. It's like, it, it becomes this thing of like, oh, 
my friend is cool. Like he's, he's finding his place and it's nothing like anything I would ever imagine because so for so many of, like I just noted for so many of these stories about main characters who don't fit in, fitting in looks suspiciously like the way everybody else fits in. And there's a reason for that. And that reason is very few people are truly unique. Very few people go through the world being, let's say, one of a hundred. But what does it look like for those people who are one of a hundred? What, what does it look like for people who are actually one of a kind, who are exceptional in some way, good or bad? And one of the reasons why I like thinking about this is because I have the unfortunate designation of being a one in 100 chance. And what I mean there is, and I probably talked about this before on the podcast, but I was part of a, um, when, I, when I was growing up, I'm a brain cancer survivor. I was part of a, a group study of 100 childhood cancer survivors. And we were monitored on some level from the day we diagnosed in either at birth or in very early childhood to 15. I think it was, I was 15 or something. And... To, to, like, our early teens. And by the end of that monitoring period, I was the only kid left alive. That's a really... That's a really dark, really unexpected and odd thing to just know. To just know that of all the other subjects in a peer-reviewed medical study... You are the only one who is a complete file. <laughs> it's like, you are definitely in a textbook. Congratulations. <laughs> and, like, this is always posed as, like, a death game concept in anime. Even in something like, once again, Naruto. Um, actually, Boruto. You find, you find the kind of remnants of this. In that fact, the hidden misfile is the way that... N- ninja graduate they kill every other classmate (laughs) like they are the only one left alive at the end of the school year kind of deal but it's very but that's a very hard and that's always seen as like a creeping as like a big monstrous evil as well it should be it's why that kind of storyline is written like that um it's in the wake of the Hunger Games, you get tons of Hunger Games-like, um, Battle Royale-like things, where that concept is repeated and is seen as being a like societal flaw, as being a societal failure that it has to exist at all. Same thing with um, Squid Game. But the reason that they're doing that in those cases is they're doing that to interrogate the world that forces this. But what about the world that where everybody else succeeds except for the one? Where the whole is served except for one, except for very rare outliers. That's a much different story to tell. That's a much different place to be and way to feel a great example of this in anime is actually um from a quietly brilliant but nonetheless etchy and horned up as hell show um known as high school of the dead so in high school of the dead they have this it's a it's a zombie it's a zombie outbreak show it's an etchy zombie outbreak show with a harem of women and but also like a like a cadre of characters both women and men but the women are definitely like it's like i think there's like two got two male characters and then a bunch of women characters in the main cast and there's a character named um busujima and she's like a real fetish object in that show, just like every female character in that show is. But there's this moment in that show where she talks about, like, 
deeply loving violence. And, it, and uh, But she never acted on any of her deep love for violence because it was not socially acceptable, because there was not a mechanism where that was useful. Especially her being a, a beautiful young woman from a well-to-do family. And, the, and she talks about the kind of freedom she experiences in this zombie apocalypse scenario because she now just gets to fucking chop shit in half without needing to break a sweat as to what people think because that is now the new established law of the land. And if you look at Ko in this, in Call of the Night, if you, or you look at any of the other characters in Call of the Night, it's society that's kind of fucking them over. Not the other way around. You know, Ko, Ko is straight up wired differently, and the world around him did not have a way to handle it. It just didn't. And so he went kind of drifting in search of a world that did, and he found one. And and no and to be clear, no one helped him with that. Another great character who um, embodies this kind of like what's good for all is not necessarily good for one is uh, Krusty from um, from Log from Log Horizon. He is just like brilliantly violent and like weird and fun and every and everyone around him is like yeah that's just how crusty is <laughs> we stopped trying to fix it <laughs> there is no fixing it it is a core character not defect but but trait but and boon in off in often cases and once he's like once Krusty it's freed from his body in the law in the story of Log Horizon where they all get trapped in the game. He's kinda okay being in the game forever. Like he he's cool with it not with the mystery not being solved. I, I pretty quickly. <laughs> like everybody else is like, hey, we all kinda need and wanna go home. <laughs> where the fuck's our body? <laughs> This is very concerning. And Krusty's like, I don't know, it seems cool here. I get to kill whatever I want. And the And like I said, I'm gonna talk about the the effect of the concept of the cult of the individual on anime for the next Sunday edition I do. But um in not not this Sunday, but next Sunday. But the these like, those moments in those shows and this whole show show this kind of alternate effect of what, like, a world that is about everybody's working for everybody's sake could be for an individual person. And I'm not saying that, like, the cult of the individual of America kind of cultural everybody is their own thing and like we all have our own power and everybody owns a gun and you can shoot anybody who walks close close enough to you is the right choice it is not but my suspicion is that it's a blend of the two because for this show to feel so interesting in it, and once again, like I said, I have not seen the whole show, and I, I realize that um, that he finds his his own community and his, uh, its own a community built up around him. But the thing that's so astonishing about this show to me is that he really starts nowhere. He starts like kind. He starts in such a solitary place that it's it's. It's got this like deep melancholy sadness to it that makes it 
that makes the fun that like Navina brings into the picture. We could that she's really the person who does it. Feel really like lighthearted and fun and flirty and all the things that it feels. And it makes sense that like Ko is like, yeah, I'm gonna fall in love with you then. Because nothing before what he nothing before what he's done of what he's done has ever offered him anything better. You know, like And I'm I'm coming at this you, you should know from as a biracial disabled childhood brain cancer survivor who for much of his at for all of his adolescent life there was a darkness to that at first parents were wary of letting their kids encounter because when you meet a cancer survivor kid, there's a big question of, oh, are they going to live for a long time? Because I don't want my kid to be real good friends with a kid and then that kid die. Like, that's a mean thing to think, but it's a thing that people think. And also, like, people are wary of you when they know that that's a possibility. When they know that there's some real darkness, and I think I've probably talked about this before, they're wary of you in a way that isn't, that you can't always control. Like, it's not my fault that I had brain cancer. It's not my fault that, like, because I survived having brain cancer, my whole medical life is so fucking weird. From then on, out. I mean, still, I'm a fucking medical weirdo. But people don't know how to deal with that, so they don't. And asking, and asking people to be themselves and, and know that the right people will accept them is really easy when you don't have to do that. When you've already been accepted. It's a lot harder to... Say, get up in the middle of the night and just go for a walk. And just have the confidence that you're not... And have the confidence and, like, strength of will to know from this point forward, I am not fucking with the daytime world any fucking more. I'm a child, so I'm, like, I'm a kid. I'm a teenager, so I have to fuck with it to some extent. But I'm just not... I'm going to put in 2%. And save the other, the 1% of my effort there. And save the other 99% for what I actually believe in. And I'm reading a book called Unreasonable Hospitality. And in it, the guy used to work for, um, for uh, Danny Meyer, the guy who started Shake Shack. But in it, the author talks about, talks about, employees a lot and one of the things he says is you know there are employees there are employees who try and employees who don't who aren't trying and both can not be succeeding and one of the reasons an employee could be struggling is they're not in the job that's best suited for them and he talks about being a manager and he talks about how his job is to find the best job that people are suited for and he talks about his dad who served in the Vietnam War and his dad had a platoon and his dad platoon was not the best. But there was a somebody in the platoon named whose nickname was Kentucky. And his dad said Kentucky was, to be quite frank, not the brightest bulb in the box. He was not real smart, couldn't aim for shit, and like really struggled. Except for one area. Because Kentucky had grown up in Kentucky and in the like rural in the rural in rural America, he had a undeterred, incredible sense of direction. Which was really valuable in the fucking middle of the woods. In the fucking middle of the like jungle in Vietnam. So what his dad did was he moved to Kentucky from the middle of the pack from the middle of their, like, marching order, 
where Kentucky was struggling and like fucking up all the time, and moved him forward to the begin to the front, where he where he started to and then continued to surpass all expectations and succeed beyond anybody's wildest thought that of what he would do. Now, that takes somebody that kind of thinking and acting on it takes somebody in your life to do that. But it's really hard to expect somebody who is not exceptional or you or true or did not seem truly unique outwardly to have that person. I was lucky enough to have those people in my life, but there were plenty of times when people in my life just couldn't understand why I wasn't with the program, what was wrong, what the deal was. And one of those times was when I was in um, math class. So in, at least when I was in math, one of the big um, things you had to do was you had to do math in pencil. You couldn't do it in a pen. You couldn't even do it in an erasable pen, technically, but they would let you. And I just kept forgetting a pencil because it was the only class that used a pencil where a pencil was not provided. Meaning art class, they had pencils. It was fine. But math, you had to bring your own pencil. My teacher, in, my math teacher in middle school, was a total bitch. She tried to fail me every single fucking time. If it was a raceable pen, it was not good enough. Like, that's a pencil. Leave me alone. Everybody complained about this lady. She was so... And, and she was a, quite frankly, bad teacher. She was so adherent to the rules... Because the rules would be the thing that she believed people would would help everyone succeed. That she wasn't allowing for little moments to happen. Where somebody's just having a bad day. Where a hormonal teenager who stumbled into class with just having an off day could maybe catch a break. The best version of that, one of the best versions of that, was actually also in that same school year, school period, which was middle school, where we had, well, I had a science teacher who straight up, she like looked at us all and she's like, you know what? She, she's like, you know what I hate about school? You know what I've always hated about school and in no way believe in? And we're all like, this is about to get weird. What? She's like, homework. And we all looked at her like, seriously? You're not going to give us science homework? She's like, no. None of you want to do it. If I'm doing my job right, I sh- you should be learning everything you need to learn in class anyway. It's bullshit. I'm not going to give you homework. Now, that was like a revolutionary revelation for anybody in Mrs. In Mrs. Smith's class. Shout out to Mr. Smith, to Mrs. Smith in um, my middle school. It's like you wanted to be in her class because she did not give homework and it was awesome. And then something really interesting happened to me in high school when I was in freshman English. I was doing the homework. I was doing my best to make it look like I was doing the homework. I was like trying to look like a like I was doing the right thing. But just about everybody else was just not bothering. Like they had enough fucked up problems because it was a special education class, and like one of the kids was had been had been in rehab like. We were all kind of fucked up. And my teacher, um, Mr. Ferguson, shout out to Mr. Ferguson, um, just stare at us one day and goes like, you know what, I'm not going to give you guys homework. Alex is the only one even pretending to do it. And I can tell he's pretending. I'm like, yep, I am. The rest of you's like, you guys don't need this bullshit. You don't need another thing to fuck you over. You don't need like a reason you don't need another reason for adults to fuck with you. So I'm just not going to give you homework. We all were like, that sounds cool, Ferg. Thanks. Including me. And that's where it really taught me that, like, that was, thinking about it now, that really taught me, 
Like this is all arbitrage. This is none of this is truly important. It's all just like it. It's it's all in the spirit of who's lying anyway. Everything's made up, and the points don't matter. And but the but there's a lot about being but there's a lot of stuff built up in being a kid and being young that is out there to tell you no this is all very important and it will matter for the rest of your life and you run into people who that's true like the Winklevi are probably still trading on their time at Harvard a lot of people at Harvard are very careful to make sure you know they went to Harvard. You know, I went to a college. I remember DCAD was great. It was an art school. Is it in every facet of my life? No. Sometimes I remember it and I look it up online. I'm like, oh, hey, they haven't changed the, the website in a long time. That's about it. I have two, two of my best, my two best friends are from my college years. But for each of us, we are the only people, we are about, well, actually, that's not true. Lauren talks to Brad and Larry. But um, for other than, like, with me and Kie, hi, Kie, if you're listening to this, I hope you are, because I mention you a lot. Hi. We're the only two people we keep in touch with from our graduating class. Actually, Kie occasionally sees Lauren because occasionally they're in the same place together. Um, but other than that, it's not really, like, it's not really a thing that affects us. And this show, to me at least, is about a kid finding out that the points are made up and the rules don't matter. And, and it's about him slowly letting those rules go and letting himself be himself to the fullest extent in a way that most people, the most people feel they can't. The most people, the most people's lives won't let them be. And like, with the like superstructure of anime parents being super absent from their kids' lives oftentimes, it's the only way this could happen because like he wakes up and he's just like, sneaks out of his house and leaves. Fucking just, Wanders about the city. That's not great parenting. But it's standard anime parenting. For a parent to never notice that. And it's probably actually. A little bit more standard parenting in general. For parents to not notice that. oftentimes For a while. You know. Everybody's human. To everybody. The points that make. The point. Everything's made up and the points don't matter. And subconsciously, when you discover like, oh, I didn't tell him to go to bed yesterday and he seemed fine. Oh, well, don't need to don't need to question that ever. And it's just it's kind of fun to watch somebody just find themselves and and find themselves in a real way outside of the structure that's provided for them. And on that note, if you like this episode, new episodes of podcast drop every Thursday and every other Sunday. Um, Sunday editions are more metatextual, they're more fan-based, like the previous Sunday edition that was all about Anime NYC um, coming up soon. There'll be Sunday editions that are actual interviews with people, I'm hoping. Like Evan Minto of Isaacy fame. I'm also, I've also reached out to Matt from Starfruit Books, a independent manga publisher. Um, and I still have to reach out to the artist behind Boomslank to get him on the podcast. But look forward to those guests and maybe some others as I stare at the stack of cards business cards I have from Anime NYC, but, um, 
un- and some Thursday editions are more like this. They're more about an individual show. Or in the case of next week's episode, I'm going to be talking about Shauna's Journey, which is the um, not new, but newly translated um, manga from Hayao Miyazaki. It's sitting on my bedside table. I have to finish reading it. Um, and until then, I will talk to you on Thursday. Yeah, I've got no time. Can I stay the moonlight? Never want to be blue light. 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 Never want to be bl